Hello, this is Pastor John Willingham of Doralstown Presbyterian Church. As our podcast audience continues to grow, I want to thank our loyal listeners and welcome those who may have just recently found us. We know that life can quickly become busy, so this podcast offers an on-the-go opportunity to hear a Sunday sermon along with the scripture lesson read by that day's lay leader or preacher. We also encourage you to visit our website at dtownpc.org to learn more about our church and all of our diverse ministries. Thank you for tuning in. Our New Testament reading this morning comes from the book of Luke 23, verses 33 through 38. You're welcome to join in the Bible that's in your pew on page 89 in the New Testament. Listen to the word. When they came to the place that is called the skull, they crucified Jesus there with the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots to divide his clothing. And the people stood by watching. But the leaders scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Messiah of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. The word of the Lord. A 20th century minister named Ernie Campbell used to have a monthly newsletter where he talked about all kinds of topics. One in 1998, he spoke of how he was trying to become tech savvy. He was 65 years old at the time, and it was written almost a quarter century ago, but still rings true. I've taken a lot of heat lately, he said, for finally breaking down and entering the world of cyberspace. A friend reminds me that when it comes to computers, there are three kinds of people. The computer illiterate, the computer belligerent, and the computer devotee. I confess, he says, that I was more than merely ignorant. I was belligerent. My ultimate put down was to say defiantly, I don't want anything that Jesus didn't have. But I decided that one either gets with it or gets left behind. And it has been fun, especially, he said, the email part. Determined to overcome my ignorance and fear, I sought help in the form of books. I went to a well-stacked New York City bookstore and asked for a copy of Computers for Dummies. I was at a loss for words when the clerk replied, what program do you want it for? How should I know, I answered. I've already confessed that I'm a dummy, and dummies by definition cannot be expected to know 
that different programs exist, much less how one program might differ from the other. After recalling that conversation, he went on to say that those dummy books don't start back far enough. They are guilty of the unwarranted presumption that the reader already knows some basic information. Perhaps a new approach is needed, a book for those who would like to become dummies. He shared that observation as he spoke about his own preaching and that of other clergy that he had known, namely of how the preacher can make the mistake of thinking the congregation knows more than they do. And so, he suggested a sermon series called Christianity for Dummies that would allow people to join wherever they found themselves in their spiritual walk. This morning, I am starting a Lenten sermon series. I'm not assuming any of you are dummies in your spiritual lives, but I'm going to focus on the basics even so, namely the words of Jesus. Lent is intended to be a time for us to deepen our relationship with Christ. And our work here in the weeks ahead will linger with words that Jesus spoke from the cross. They're often referred to as the last seven words of Jesus, More precisely, they are the last seven phrases of Jesus. And we will hear from each of the gospel authors who do not agree on what Jesus' final words were. That really shouldn't surprise us. For any of us who have been present for the same event can recall how we remember it and tell it differently than others who were present too. And yet, even with the diversity of those seven words, collectively, they tell us much about what Jesus would want us to know and live. Today, we begin with Luke's account of how he describes that Jesus was handed over and taken to the place called the Skull, and there he was crucified with two criminals, one on the left and one on the right. And it was then that Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Next week, we will stay with Luke and hear of a brief conversation Jesus has with the two men who were crucified with him at the same time. But today we stop and ponder that initial word, one that offers grace. One might well argue that it is the most important message that Jesus delivered from the cross. As John Mulder, in his powerful sermon a couple weeks ago, reminded us, forgiveness stands at the heart of Christianity. And so it is for us that we understand this word of grace to be key to who Jesus was, and yet for him to speak it in the moment that he did is made even more powerful as we recall what had preceded it. For in those hours prior to that moment, Jesus had been betrayed by one of his own disciples and arrested on some trumped-up charges that he was seeking to destroy the temple. He was delivered by religious leaders 
because they didn't understand him and felt threatened by what he was doing and handed over to political authority who knew that Jesus was innocent and yet still allowed the crowd to decide whether Jesus or a known criminal would be released. Jesus doesn't tell us who the them were when he says, Father, forgive them. But I think it's likely that he had in mind all of those and others who had shaped the events that resulted in his crucifixion. It is a key part of our understanding of who Jesus was. That gift of grace, even at the end. And yet apparently, for some early Christians, that word was too controversial to include. Those of you who are following along in the Pew Bible might have noticed that those words from Jesus are bracketed. And the reason for that punctuation mark is because many of the manuscripts for Luke omit those words from Jesus. And while we don't have a clear understanding of why some scribes would choose not to include that powerful word, most scholars think it's because in those early years that there was still this great tension between Christians and the Jews. And so the thought that Jesus, in his act of forgiveness, would include the religious leaders who had played such a key part in his death was more than they could take, and so they left out those words. Now, that understanding of Jesus extending his grace to all is not a surprise to us. And yet, just yesterday, a hate group in our country declared that Saturday should be a day of violence being carried out against Jews in our land. We reject that horrific statement and stand with our Jewish brothers and sisters celebrating the oneness that we find in God. So for us, it isn't really a question of why Jesus would forgive, but rather how he phrased it. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Now, in our culture, we have an expression that says, ignorance is bliss. And what we mean by those words is that sometimes we're better off just not knowing. At family gatherings, for instance, when adult children begin to tell accounts of things that happened during their growing up years that their parents didn't know about, <laughs> mom and dad in that moment probably were just as glad not to have known. At least I find that to be true for myself. And yet in legal circles, there is also this statement attributed to the jurist Oliver Wendell Holmes, who said, ignorance of the law is no excuse for breaking the law. Now, what's meant by that statement is that someone who is arrested for a crime cannot offer as a defense the fact that they didn't know that it was a problem to do what they had done. And yet Jesus, in his words, speaks directly contrary to that legal standard. For Judas knew what he was doing in betraying his teacher for 30 pieces of silver. 
Those religious leaders knew what they were doing in making up charges to present Jesus as a threat to the Roman government. Peter knew what he was doing in denying that he even knew his teacher three times for fear that he might be the next one to be arrested. Pilate knew what he was doing. He had already affirmed that Jesus was innocent, and yet he allowed the crowd to decide, and he knew the choice they made was the incorrect one. And those soldiers who led Jesus away knew what they were doing too. Jesus forgave all of them. And that isn't always our first inclination. True story told of a minister who received a note in the handwriting of a 94-year-old woman who had just died. The woman had never married, and in her note, she spells out details for the service, including the scripture to be read, hymns to be sung, and then offered this very specific, specific directive. As she said, there will be no male pallbearers at my funeral. Since they wouldn't take me out when I was alive, <laughs> they're not going to take me out now that I'm dead. Jesus modeled a very different kind of response. And Raymond Brown, the biblical scholar, helps us understand maybe what Jesus meant. As he says, if there were those who did not know because they had not been told, there were also those who did not know because although they had been told, they did not grasp. Jesus made no distinction as he asked his Father to forgive them all. You and I know the gift of those moments when we receive grace, when we have carried out something that we knew was either the wrong thing to do or we refrained from doing what we knew to be the right thing to do. And when we have that gift extended to us, it is such a blessing. And yet there are also these moments in life when we carry out things really not aware of their full impact, really not having thought it through in terms of what that act would do to someone else or to ourselves. And in those times, those kinds of occasions, when we receive grace even so, truly, it is a moment of bliss. In her autobiography, Wait Till Next Year, Doris Kearns Goodwin recalls a moment from 1950 when she was a seven-year-old girl preparing for her first communion. As part of that, there was the moment of her first confession. And as she went into that booth, she feared that her greatest sin, as a devoted fan of the Brooklyn Dodgers, was having gone to a nearby Episcopal church to hear the catcher for their team, Roy Campanella, speak. She describes what happened as that conversation unfolded. 
I opened the curtain and entered the confessional. The panel slid open on my right, and the priest directed his attention to me. Yes, my child? Bless me, Father, for I have sinned. This is my first confession. She began by describing how she'd gone to hear the ball player speak. And the priest said, there's nothing here to worry about. And she thought to herself, oh, but there is, for I've only just begun. And what else, my child, he said. And she took a deep breath and said, I've talked in church 20 times. I've disobeyed my mother five times. I wished harm on others several times. I told a fib three times. I talked back to my teacher twice. And I held my breath. And to whom did you wish harm, the priest said. My scheme had failed. He had picked out the one group of sins that most troubled me. And so speaking as softly as I could, I made my admission. I wished harm to Allie Reynolds. The Yankees pitcher, he asked. And how did you wish to harm him? I wanted him to break his arm. And how often did you make this wish? Every night before going to bed, in my prayers. And were there others? Oh yes, I admitted. I wished that Robin Roberts of the Phillies would fall down the steps of his stoop. I wished that Enos Slaughter of the Cards would break his ankle, that Phil Rizzuto of the Yanks would fracture his rib, and that Alvin Darks of the Giants would hurt his knee. But, I hasten to add, I wished that all of these injuries would go away once the baseball season had ended. <laughs> she went on to admit that the reason for those unusual petitions was hoping they might help the Dodgers finally win the World Series. And the priest assured her that victory would nearly be as sweet if undeserved, and then went on and said, let me tell you a secret. I love the Dodgers just as much as you do, but I believe they will win the World Series someday fairly and squarely. You don't need to wish harm on others to make it happen. Do you understand what I am saying? Yes, Father. Are there any other sins, my child? No. Father, for your penance, say two Hail Marys, three Our Fathers, and, he added with a chuckle, say a special prayer for the Dodgers. Now, say the act of contrition. When I finished, Goodwin recalls, the priest made the sign of the cross and murmured the official Latin words of forgiveness. I left the confessional that day buoyant my soul spotless, my first confession received by a baseball-loving priest had left me closer to my church than ever before. Father, forgive them, Jesus said, for they do not know what they are doing. A gift that thankfully comes to us too. And for the same reason. Let us pray. We give thanks, O oh God, for that incredible grace that you have extended to us. Help us to know with confidence of your forgiveness. 
and to use that moment to grow ever closer to living the life you intend. For it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you again for joining us today. Once again, I invite you to check out dtownpc.org for information about our worship and programming for all ages.